Hello, everybody. It's the Sun Also Rises radio show. This is Jeremiah Jacques. And on this day, 75 years ago, August 6th of 1945, history was forever changed as a devastating new type of weapon was used on people for the first time. It was done in order to bring an end to the worst war in mankind's history. For this special episode, we'll turn it over to a presenter who has a deep personal connection to this history-altering event. Here is my friend and colleague, Mr. Shane Granger. The mail came one spring day bearing a letter I was excited to receive. Congratulations, it read. You have been accepted to the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program. I was elated. My college dream of living and working abroad was finally coming true. So much excitement and adventure awaited. I was heading to Japan to teach English. Then I kept reading. You have been assigned to the Hiroshima Prefectural Technical High School. Hiroshima? But, but that's where they dropped the A-bomb. I mean, that's, that's where we, Americans, drop the bomb. What are they going to think of an American living and working among them? I worried how I would be received. Would they accept me? Would I be welcome? Would the subject come up often? The answers to those questions would come, and I had a lot to learn about the people of Japan and the legacy of the atomic bomb. As I boarded my flight for Tokyo, my mind went back in time. Everything I knew about Japan, I had heard from the stories my stepfather, Bob, had told me. When I was a teenager, he used to tell me the stories about himself and his mates serving in the Navy Seabees. During World War II, the Seabees were a construction battalion. They built roads, bridges, airstrips, and bases all over the South Pacific Islands during the war. Bob was a dozer operator in the 40th Naval Construction Battalion. For 21 months between October 1942 and September 1944, they traveled 22,000 miles across the South Pacific Ocean. Their work in the New Hebrides, New Guinea, and Admiralty Islands was critical to the success of General Douglas MacArthur's island hopping campaign, pushing the Japanese out of the islands back to mainland Japan. As the jungles gave way to the heavy machinery, the Seabees built camps, roads, and most importantly, airstrips. Millions of tons of coral were crushed and made into runways and taxiways. Bob told me many stories of his time in the Navy, from narrow escapes from death to seeing entertainers like Bing Crosby keeping the troops' spirits up. I particularly remember him recounting how that when they made a beachhead, they would position a dozer at the front with the blade up, and the men would get behind the tractor for protection. When the LST boat landed on the beach and the door fell down, they would push forward into a hail of bullets ricocheting off of the blade. The men safely tucked behind this giant machine. Nicknamed the Fighting Forty, the battalion was one of the few construction battalions that actually saw combat. This occurred in the spring of 1944 when they joined the U.S. Army 1st Cavalry on Los Negros. 
Afterward, General MacArthur recommended the battalion for a distinguished unit ribbon, and they earned the Army's World War II equivalent of the Presidential Unit Citation. Special mention was made of the bulldozers going into the teeth of the enemy positions. Eventually, malaria ended Bob's military service, and he returned home to the United States to convalesce. This occurred just before the unit was dispatched to Okinawa and most likely saved his life. But General MacArthur pressed on, preparing for the invasion of mainland Japan. Then, on the morning of August the 6th, 1945, the invasion plans changed. America dropped the first atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima, a city I was about to call home for the next two years. Everything I knew about the Japanese was from these personal stories from my stepdad and other veterans who encountered them in the theater of war. Here I was, heading into a city the Japanese government had declared in 1949 as a city of peace. As I boarded my flight in Tokyo for the last leg to Hiroshima, I stared at the words on the paper in front of me. I struggled to comprehend how to pronounce the words on this paper. Our guides had told us to memorize them and, and speak this formal greeting, something akin to, very nice to make your acquaintance, or how do you do? Well, upon meeting our supervisors, we were supposed to speak these words. The problem was the words were in Japanese and I barely spoke a word. Dozu yoroshiku onigashimasu. I struggled with this seemingly unpronounceable greeting. Over and again I practiced, trying to get it right. As the plane landed, I became very nervous. I kept repeating the phrase under my breath. Dozu yoroshiku uh, it just wasn't coming. But as I turned the corner to the receiving hall, I scanned the people who were standing there. Then I saw my name on a small sign. A middle-aged Japanese man looked expectantly at me, matter-of-factly. At six feet one, I towered over him. Bowing awkwardly at the waist, I uttered my horrible rendition of the greeting. And then he replied, in perfect English. Nice to meet you. You want to get something to eat? Suddenly, all my fears and insecurities melted away. Mr. Kosei Mito and I became fast friends. And for the next two years, he would be my boss, my mentor, my travel guide to all that Japan had to teach me. Upon arriving at my apartment, our first cultural misunderstanding took place. Mr. Mito stood in the entryway, gesturing for me to go away, all the while saying, come in, come in, come here. His gesture was the one my grandmother used to tell us kids to shoo, you know, with, with the back of the hand pushing toward me as if splashing water on something with the back of your palm with the fingers pointed downward. I backed away, and he gestured more vigorously. Come in, come inside, he said. I finally opted to obey his words rather than his gesture and walked toward the door. I later realized this was the Japanese way to pull someone toward them with the inside of the palm. I was focusing on the wrong side of the hand and the opposite motion. 
His gesture was meant like a backhoe that pulls a bucket of dirt toward the tractor. And I was reading it as the opposite. So much for cultural understanding. (laughs) But we got through it. And I was thankful for my apartment and for his help in getting settled in. Mito Sensei, as I called him, immediately offered to take me to Hiroshima Peace Park. Wow, I thought. We're just going to dive right into this. The A-bomb and everything. I had just arrived, and here we were heading straight to the park. It turns out the A-bomb park was only a few blocks from my apartment. Mr. Mito guided me around the park for hours and explained the memorials, statues, the cenotaph, and he encouraged me to go through the museum. I remember ringing the giant bronze bell for peace. One of the most powerful monuments I saw that day was the Children's Peace Monument. It commemorates Sadako Sasaki and the thousands of child victims of the bombing. Known as a hibakusha, or bomb-affected person, Sadako died of leukemia at the age of 12 from the bomb's radiation. She is said to have folded 1,000 paper cranes before her death. The memorial statue is draped in many thousands of brilliantly colored paper cranes, which Japanese children fold in her memory to this day. As we toured the park that day, I remember being struck by how much Mito-sensei knew about the park. His knowledge seemed endless. But it would be quite a while before he would reveal to me a shocking secret. A lot of trust would have to be built before I would come to know just how personal his connection to the atomic bomb was. My first glimpse into this connection came much later when visiting Mito Sensei's home. Typical of Japanese families, his parents lived on the first floor and he and his family lived on the second. His mother, Mrs. Tomie Mito, was an elderly woman with gentle eyes and a soft smile. I learned she had recovered from illness and was feeling genki, or sprite as the Japanese saying goes. Mito Sensei also explained that as a child, he had a very weak immune system and had often been hospitalized. The clues were there, but I wasn't a very smart detective at that time. Before I arrived in Japan, I had worried how I, as an American, would be received by the people of Hiroshima. My English department supervisor, Mito Sensei, had welcomed me warmly. We spent many hours together traveling around Japan, and he patiently answered each of my questions about the Japanese language and the Japanese people. I never once felt a scintilla of animus or unease from him or any of the people I regularly came into contact with. They treated me with the utmost respect and dignity and with a great friendliness. So I was even more astonished when he revealed to me the likely cause of his mother's illness and his diminished immunity as a child. Both Mito-sensei and his mother Tomie were hibakusha, bomb-affected persons. They had both survived the atomic bombing. During World War II, Mrs. Mito lived with her husband in the center of Hiroshima. Near the end of the war, they and many other inhabitants were ordered to move away to the country for safety. 
Three months before the bombing, Mrs. Mito and her husband moved in with her parents in a village about four and a half miles away. They were tucked behind a small mountain which separated them from the city of Hiroshima. Every day, her husband and her father went over the mountain to the city to work. Mrs. Mito was four months pregnant at the time the bomb was dropped. Climbing up to the top of the mountain to a scenic spot overlooking the city, she saw the devastation and thought it was a dream. Days later, she ventured into the city to check on their home, unknowingly exposing herself and her unborn child to radiation and forever placing them among the ranks of the Hibakusha. Here, in her own words, is her story. That day is something I still can't forget. It is also something I certainly don't want to remember. It makes my heart ache. However, if I don't want it to ever happen again, it seems wise that I should write it down somewhere. The roar from the B-29 on that day was unlike the regular ones. It was deep and strong, as if it shook my gut. Just as I came out of my house, I saw a huge black aircraft disappearing towards the west. Then there was a tremendous explosion. It shook the house violently. The ceiling in the house fell to the ground, scattering ash everywhere. The paper sliding doors and mesh windows have not been straight since then. Someone reported there was a fire in the middle of Hiroshima City, but I... I didn't believe what I'd heard. It couldn't happen, I told myself. But at the same time, my heart was beating fast because I knew we were in the middle of a war, so it really could happen. This might have been how my neighbors felt, I guess, as we all walked up to a nearby mountain. No one spoke a word. The mountain was where we went on the 3rd of April every year with picnic baskets for Hanami to see the cherry blossoms. From the very top, we could enjoy a view of all of Hiroshima City. What we saw on this day, however, was literally a sea of fire over the entire city. Every one of us felt numb. We froze in place, our bodies shaking in silence. This could not be happening. It just could not. As people came back to their senses, we started to worry about our husbands who had left for work that morning. We started to walk back home, still in silence. Soon the news about the victims spread to each of us in our quiet village. We gradually discovered who had been injured or burned. None of us knew what to do or how to be of any help. While we were too overwhelmed to help, people who were injured started to be sent on trucks to schools and temples. I did not eat. No, as a matter of fact, I did not remember to eat. All I could think of was how my father and my husband were. I realized it was getting dark. No one in my family said they might have been burned to death, though that was going round and round in each of our hearts. We just walked here and there, in and out. Finally, at around nine at night, in the dim light, there was a voice calling, I'm home. I rushed to the entrance to find it was my father. He looked like a ghost. His head was so covered in black, I couldn't tell whether he was facing me or facing away. His clothes were torn apart and fell to the ground like strips of seaweed. I could see through the holes in his trousers that his skin was also covered with black. He was alive and was safely home, for now, so I was relieved. My husband, however, did not come home that night. Not knowing how to look for him, 
Time just passed, and I worried all night long. He did not come home on the following day either. It was two days later before he finally came home. He was a teacher and was safe because he was at the bottom of a school stairwell when it happened. He told us that he couldn't come home right away, as he had to help his students. When the city was bombed, my father was on his way to work, only about 650 yards from the hypocenter. When the bomb exploded, he was buried alive with debris. His memory about time was not clear, but when he finally managed to push his head above the debris, some students pulled him out. He then walked, avoiding the fire, and a woman he didn't know offered him an umbrella, saying, Please take this. It's too hot out here. Taking the umbrella, he walked for half a day to come back home. He was so glad that he survived and told our family and neighbors that it was a narrow escape. We counted his injuries, though, and found 19. He also had some pain on his body, so he went to see a doctor. About 10 days later, small red spots, each of them was the size of a chestnut, appeared over his entire body. The chief doctor at National Hataka Clinic said that was the effect of the poisonous radioactive gas from the atomic bomb. He unfortunately did not have any medicine. Still, the doctor suggested a blood transfusion might help, and we tried several times with his son's blood, but his body got weaker and weaker. Something, like guts from a fish, came out when he vomited and in his diarrhea. It filled several washing bowls. When this happened, it seemed as if all the guts in his body had been forced out. What came out gave off a horrible smell, which filled the air for a very long time. Day after day, he became weaker, too weak to move or eat. We heard that grilled worms from chestnut trees would be good for his throat, so we actually cut the trees and grilled the white worms we found, which he still could not eat. That was all we could do, as in those days there was not much medicine available to ordinary people like us. At last, he lost his voice. After that, we tried to communicate using a pen, but he was too weak to hold it. He became weaker. Three days before he died, he told us to fetch a parcel wrapped in purple cloth from the second drawer in his bookshelf, which we did and showed to him. Inside was money he had withdrawn from his own bank account. Then he told us to separate it and give it to our relatives and his close friends who had meant so much to him. On the morning of the 3rd of September, four weeks after the bombing, he wanted us to help with changing his pajamas as he wanted to hear the 7 o'clock news. We changed his clothes and put the futon higher on his back so that he could sit straight up. He was listening to the radio with both hands on his lap and his eyes closed, looking so beautiful. The news was about the instrument of surrender, which had been signed on the USS Missouri only the previous day. The broadcast finished at 25 past 7. At the very same time, my father's heart stopped. It was such a beautiful last moment of his life, so apt so suitable for my father's meticulous character. Not realizing that there was radiation in the city, Tomie entered Hiroshima three days after the bomb was dropped to see what happened to their house. She was four months pregnant with her son, Kosei. Kosei Mito was born in January 1946. 
He was very sickly in his childhood and was absent from school for almost a month. He suffered from many kinds of infectious diseases, which might have been because of weak immunity caused by the bomb's radiation. Mrs. Mito had bouts with cancer and other virus-related illnesses much later in life, but she was very determined to live and overcame her health problems. In 2008, Mito-sensei wrote about his parents' experiences. He wrote, quote, Physically, my father remained very healthy except for the last year of his life. He died at the age of 92. My father never told us anything about what he experienced. All his life, he kept silent because of the emotional trauma. The survivors never got any treatment to deal with this mental stress, and even today, more than 60 years later, very few of the survivors can tell their stories to others. When I decided to be a guide at the Hiroshima Peace Park, I asked my mother to write a testimony of the experience, at least about her father. But because of the emotional trauma, it took her half a year to even start writing, and she needed another half year to finish it. She still does not want to ever write about what she saw when she entered Hiroshima three days after the bomb was dropped. I am ready now to write whatever I know about what happened to my family and to share it with the world. In April of 2020, Mrs. Mito Tomie turned 102 years old. She is still living at home with her son and his family. She has five grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. Mito-sensei retired from teaching in 2006. Since then, he has volunteered as an English-speaking tour guide at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. He realizes that survivors of the A-bomb won't be around forever, and he and a dwindling number of hibakusha are teaching a new generation of young Japanese the story of the bombing. Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum and Park receives 1.2 million visitors annually. While the museum employs its own volunteer corps of atomic bomb survivors, Mr. Mito can be found daily by the Atomic Bomb Dome, an iconic skeletal building that was left as a reminder of the bomb's devastation. There he wears a badge that says, Fourth Class Survivor, in utero. He guides visitors through a series of brochures about the effects of the bomb and tells his personal story. To date, Kosei Mito has guided 80,000 foreign visitors from 178 countries. He was scheduled to guide 2,000 American students this summer, but the trip was canceled due to the coronavirus travel restrictions. He says this summer fewer visitors come, but he is there to guide them no matter how many. Mr. Mito and his mother will not attend the 75th commemoration of the A-bombing today, he says the post-ceremonial activities are too noisy and his mother's age makes it hard for her to go. But they understand the significance of the event and they both know that as long as they live, they are eyewitnesses to one of the most devastating days in the history of man. Mr. Mito says, quote, The atomic bomb is the culmination of an evil war. While we have to accept responsibility for what Japanese military did during the war, the U.S. should accept responsibility for the atomic bomb. But that's just my opinion. 
he says. Kosei Mito's message is simple. No nukes. He realizes that he's just one man and freely admits the likelihood of nuclear weapons being used in a future war. But he feels compelled to do his part and to educate others. In the meantime, he and his mother taught me so much about forgiveness and tolerance and how to get along with your neighbor. I spent two years in Japan. Every day I came into contact with Mr. Mito, and every day he taught me a lesson. Never once did he treat me as uh, an invader. Never once did I feel any hate or resentment from him, even though he had a most personal reason to feel that way toward Americans. He never showed it, and his family didn't either. And to this day, he's been a wonderful and very giving friend. As an American living in Hiroshima for two years, I learned a lot about what the Japanese people have done to rebuild their country and to move on from that terrible day 75 years ago today. And as millions remember this incredible history that occurred on this day 75 years ago, I take comfort in the knowledge of a sure hope that although mankind faces a very dark future with these awful weapons of mass destruction, they will ultimately be eradicated from this earth. Peace is coming because the Prince of Peace has promised that he will come and save mankind alive. And once his government is set up over the entire earth, a peaceful world will come. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4 reads, And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against a nation, neither shall they learn war any more. brings us to the end of this episode of the Sun Also Rises radio show. Many thanks to Mr. Shane Granger and Mrs. Corrine Eagle, and also to Mr. Kosei Mito and Mrs. Tomie Mito. Thank you also to the PEAC Institute. Please send any comments or questions you may have about the show to tsar at kpcg.fm. And for more about that beautiful, peaceful future that Mr. Granger spoke about at the end there, please check out the show notes for today's program, and we will include a link to a booklet that you can order free of charge. It's called The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like by Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. And we'll leave you today with the words of Viktor Frankl. Since Auschwitz, we know what man is capable of, and since Hiroshima, we know what is at stake. Thank you.